French poet and writer Charles Baudelaire wrote, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he does not exist. A Pew Forum study revealed out of 87% of people who believe in God, only 59% believe in hell. Yet Jesus himself spoke more about who Satan is and the implications of falling prey to his subtle tactics than he did about eternity in heaven. Today we are being bombarded with not-so-subtle messaging concerning the overall silliness of wasting time concerning oneself with thoughts of the devil. Could this be by design? What about history's recordings of the devil attacking the bloodline of Jesus on countless occasions, even going so far as to causing the birth of Nephilim giants? Join us now as we unpack this and so much more in the mission, tactics, and strategies of Satan's militia. I am Mark Russick, and you are listening to The Russick Outlook. As always, just my opinion. Hello and good day, everybody. My name is Mark Russick. You're listening to The Russick Outlook. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, Delighted to be back in the saddle again. I'm a few days late in getting this presentation out. Uh, Unfortunately, I was battling a pretty severe case of bronchitis, but the good news is I'm on the tail end of it. Uh, But nonetheless, my my voice might be a little strained and weak, so hopefully you can forgive me. But I'm really glad to be back in and, and making this presentation because I really think it's incredibly important. Uh, the title of it is The Mission, Tactics, and Strategies of Satan's Militia. And, you know, most people would understand if you're in a battle, if you're in a war, you want to know your, who your adversary is, what his plans are, what his strategies are. And that's really the approach of what we're going to take, uh, but also to kind of shine a spotlight on some things that are going on that I believe not only the church and Christians miss it, but the world just kind of glides by or, you know, doesn't even realize what's happening behind the scenes. I'm sorry. So that's really what I wanted to uncover uh, because of the serious nature of this battle. This really is a war. And Christians certainly understand the spiritual aspect of it. It's, you know, the word says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and princes of the air. Uh, and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through the pulling down of strongholds. Uh, but a lot of times, because of the constant uh, output of media and information and presentations and just, you know, everything that we're sub- subjected to in work and social life and, and things like that, and the church, that I, I think a lot of this... Uh, kind of goes by us and, you know, without us realizing it. So it's my hope to really break this down. And I want to do this in a couple of phases. This is going to be a three-part presentation because I really believe there's that much information that needs to be covered um, where I'm going to be breaking down from the very beginning before the fall um, and, and, and afterwards. And, and I'll show you kind of a breakdown of, of the upcoming topics in a few slides from now. Um, because of the serious nature of this, I, I really need to kind of break it down in phases. And that's why I need to do this. And well, I feel like I need to do this in, in three parts. Uh, if you're following me on video, you see a, a slide up there and it's a, um, it's a comment or it's a quote, I should say, from Charles Baudelaire, who was a, a French poet and writer in the mid 19th century. Uh, he says here that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And I, I, I really think that kind of sums up 
a great deal of, of difficulty and challenges that the world faces today where our adversary kind of hides behind the scenes and, you know, almost like the Wizard of Oz, who's really behind the curtain. Um, and, and a lot of times it's, it's really, it's made fun of. It's poked out sarcastically. And I, and I think that's really with intent. Uh, you know, there, there's a, uh, there's a purpose behind that. So we're, you know, it's my hope anyway that we can uncover a lot of that. But I'm going to be also breaking down some other areas and some subtle things that I believe are the are major obstacles of what we're looking at today, what the church is looking at. That started from the very beginning. I'm going to be breaking down some things that, that started in the Garden of Eden, even in the Garden of, uh, of Eden, and shortly thereafter, the impact of the Nephilim and how that lines up and what we could be facing and what we are looking at today. So I'll break all of that down in a few slides from now so you'll know all of the information that we're going to be covering over these next three presentations. Um, but before I do, if I could, if I, I'm, I'd like to ask you to please hit the like and subscribe button. Uh, as, as well as share the information, um, share the information and, and ring that bell. It's so important for us to get this information out. And, and you know, as always, I tell people uh, and, and I ask them this because our mission is to engage the veracity of Scripture, uh, the veracity of Jesus Christ, uh, you know, objectively and in a respectful manner, but also in a convincing manner by bringing in not only what the Word of God says, but also what history shows us, what the sciences show us, what archaeology shows us, and eyewitness accounts. All of that is brought into play, uh, as well as the foundation being the Word of God, because that's what we're really unpacking and, and, and uncovering. So if you could uh, share that information, we're on all the different social media platforms. Speaking of that, we'll be moving to a few other platforms in this coming year. And on that note, I'd ask you to please hit uh, or join the Russick Outlook email list because we'll be notifying you of some new things that are coming out. Just very quickly, I'd like to say we're going to be expanding our video to live camera video as well as the PowerPoint presentations and some other uh, active means of, of media that we'll be uh, editing together. And it's really because I've heard so much from a lot of you saying, you know, please, you need to kind of expand this and get more of this information out there. So uh, for those who are inclined, if you could, please keep us in prayer. We've built the studio. It's a small production studio, and uh, everything's in. We're doing some fine-tuning, uh, working out some of the technical challenges and kinks, but uh, hopefully in the coming weeks you'll, you'll be seeing some, some new formats, some new presentations, and, you know, hopefully what you'll, you'll agree with is even, you know, it's better quality. It's, it's more enhanced, I'll, I'll put it that way. So on that note, I, I, uh, I'd like to thank you, and uh, you know, let's let's get into this. So again, following me on video, uh, you you can see what's this montage of images for my uh, podcast audience. Let me just lay out that this is uh, a montage of a Ouija board, television, movie shows. Uh, we have a television show out now called Lucifer. Uh, you know, it's just making light of the devil has his own show. Um, I, you know, and I look at the, uh, the, the mutant series in Hollywood, how popular that is. And I believe that you'll see some of the impact from that. You can stem back to the Nephilim and I'll be breaking that down further, uh, in later presentations, uh, uh, tarot card reading, 
you know, it's it's so interesting how, the, you know, I think the church in a large part is a lot of the church is missing it when they don't engage prophecy as much as what I, I think how important it is. But you can see that people want to know, you know, what the future holds because of the uh, ad, not the advent, but the, because of the popularity you can measure with tarot card reading, hand reading, and, and things like that. And then you have, you know, seances, or you have the, the television show here, I'm pointing to the Long Island medium, you know, she's a woman who's made famous by engaging the dead. Um, then, you know, the, the movie Hellboy, I'm just giving you some lo- loose examples, cartoons, Comedy Central's uh, animations, you have TV shows engaging ghosts and, and demons and then, you know, last year you had this uh, dating site where, you know, they were poking fun of the girl was even, you know, willing to date Satan. And again, it just, it minimizes the impact of the devil as though he's not real. And, and I think this is by design. And, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to kind of, you know, highlight that, put put that out there. So the areas that we're going to be covering is this. We're going to look at before Satan's fall, after Satan's fall, before Adam's fall, and after Adam's fall. So there's four categories there that we're going to cover in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in just three verses. Uh, then we'll be looking at the first prophecy in the Bible, which was Genesis 3.15, which in, in actuality was the proclamation of Satan's death sentence uh, that that was issued at that time. We're going to look at the Nephilim strategy of before and after the fall. We're also going to be investigating the Nephilim and the animal kingdom. And this is really going to become important for things that we can see today, the impact uh, of of what's what's going on today. And, and we'll probably won't get to that to the last uh, presentation, maybe a little bit in the, in the second one. Uh, the bloodline of the Messiah, because it was always about getting to and stopping the Messiah. Once that uh, Genesis three fifteen prophecy was was gone, had gone out, uh, we're going to be looking at history's examples of the Antichrist spirit, uh, and and just how the Antichrist works. That you know, we when you say Antichrist, so many people think of you know the the the, the last days and when the Antichrist comes on, but. We have uh, examples that we're going to be investigating and unpacking that shows you uh, kind of they were the precursors for what is to come. Then Jesus' prophetic warning into the last days, which I believe we are starting to, I believe we are in the last days. And um, what that means, you know, I can't give a timeline on it, but uh, there are so many signs and so many things that have uh, happened that are exactly according to prophecy. But I wanted to focus on Matthew 24, 37 through 39, and Luke 17, 26 through 30. Those are the two messages in the Gospels where uh, Jesus, after he was asked by his disciples, what will be the signs of your last days? And he basically, you know, he gets into it will be as in the days of Noah and, and, and Lot. So we're going to be looking at what those days were like and what the devil, you know, what the strategy was and how we can view that today. And the way we view that today is looking at Daniel's prophecy of the advancement of knowledge. There's this exponential increase of knowledge that's going on you know, right now as we speak, uh, and, and we'll be breaking that down to the speed of which that is increasing is exponential. It's just, it's just incredible. Um, it, it almost 
well, I'll give you the numbers later. Uh, to we get, which enables us to, with that knowledge, to get to modern day gene editing and technology and AI or artificial interface, uh, artificial intelligence. I'm sorry. So that's that's those are all of the areas that we're going to cover. So let me get into this by going back to the beginning. So this is uh, taken from Ezekiel chapter 28, and it's titled The Lamentation for the King of Tyre, which is laying out Satan. This is what the Lord had revealed to his prophet Ezekiel. And, you know, bear with me. I'm going to read all of this because it's so rich. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord. So this, thus says the Lord to Satan. It says here, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was, was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So the Lord Jesus Christ, God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created Lucifer as what he was known at the time. And you see here that he was in the garden of God and he was adorned with all these uh, <clears throat> precious stones and, and, and the, the timbrels. So it, it was a magnificent um, creation that that was special in the eyes of the Lord. And he goes on to say, you were the anointed cherub who covers. That's important, and, and we'll break that down shortly. He says, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. So there was a day of creation where Lucifer was created. He's an angelic being that was made by God. Until iniquity was found in you, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O covering cherub. Again, covering cherub, remember that. From the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. By the iniquity of your trading, therefore, I bought fire from your midst. It devoured you. I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. So there you go from the very, very beginning to really what, what he is declaring is the end from the beginning by saying you shall be no more forever because that will go into uh, the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand year millennium. So that's all covered here. But you see the magnificence of, of, of who Lucifer was and how he was created and how special he was in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I'd like to just briefly get into the classes of angels and or celestial beings because you saw there that he is a cherub. And, and I just wanted to kind of break this down because you'll see some degrees or classes of, of, of angelic beings. And if, if, on the left-hand side, I have the seraphim from Isaiah 6, 2 through 3. 
and above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is filled with your glory. So it's a song. It's a, it's a praise. It's worship. And it goes on from this class of seraphim, a class of angels that are worshiping and honoring the Lord. And these songs and, and, and worship can be heard. I'm going to give you another example of, of one that most people, you know, we should, all should be familiar with. And it's Gabriel. And Gabriel is essentially the angel in the Bible, for the most part, that is delivering the messages. So you can find him in the gospel. He is the one who uh, uh, declared to Mary that she will be with child and, and you know, it, it, that she will deliver the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and here I give you the example of Luke 119. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And he was also the one who delivered the message to, to Daniel. And we saw Daniel and Michael, both the, you know, the, the archangel and the messenger in, throughout the, the book of Daniel. Uh, next, I'd like to jump to Revelation 4, 6 through 8. And this is really getting to the cherubim uh, or the cherub and the living creatures. Uh, so this is declared of what's, what John had seen uh, in, in the vision that he was taken up. Uh, to the throne room of heaven. And he says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes. And then I highlight four living creatures. So I just wanted to emphasize the four living creatures. If you follow me on video, <clears throat> jump to the far right. I'm going to Ezekiel 1, 5 through 9. Also from within came the likeness of four living creatures. And I go in and I, you know, I, I lay out here 5 through 9 what those four living creatures looked like. Um, then I'm going to show you the archangel Michael. And yet, so Jude 9, it says, Yet Michael, the, the archangel, he is the only archangel. There is one archangel. And contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So what I'm trying to emphasize here is, the strength and the power and the classifications of these cherubim, uh, of these angelic beings that, uh, you know, you're talking about the upper echelon. We, talk, we, we described how important Lucifer was in the creation. And Michael is, is engaging him. He's fighting him over the body of Moses. But notice what he does. He, he rebukes him with the Lord's name. He doesn't go by his own strength. He does it with the Lord. If you jump to Revelation 12, 7, and war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. So there is a spiritual battle that goes on uh, and, and Michael is, is the archangel out in front of a lot of this and he's the one who largely in part is dealing and battling with Satan. So a little bit more about the cherubim and you see many, many examples in the Old Testament as a matter of fact, over 90 times in the Old Testament, you can, you can find this. And a lot of this we know from the tabernacle. They're stationed at the entrance of the garden to guard the tree of life. They're, they're uh, around the tabernacle, the, the, the way it was created and adorned, not the, necessarily the angelic beings themselves. But when the Old Testament refers to Yahweh as he who dwells above the cherubim, and I give you the examples of different scriptures that has that, it alludes to both the ark's representation of the cherubim and the symbolism of Yahweh's presence. So the, the implication here is that when you mention the cherubim and you mention these 
higher class angels, I'm, you know, lack of a better term, you can uh, surmise that the presence of the Lord is there. The presence of Yahweh is there uh, with them. Uh, if you look at the cherubim that we, we kind of laid out briefly in the book of Ezekiel, um, it says, unlike the static imagery of the temple and the tabernacle cherubim, these are described as living beings with supernatural characteristics. They're connected with the chariot imagery prevalent throughout the book. The living creatures described in Ezekiel 1 through 3 are not explicitly named as cherubim, but later in the book we do find that in chapters 9 and 10. Ezekiel's cherubim differ in form from those mentioned by the former prophets, but they parallel in function serving at the throne of Yahweh. So that same uh, function that we saw in Revelation, the implication is that this same function is happening here. Um, Isaiah's creatures, remember, have six wings. That's the seraphim. Ezekiel's have four wings, and the cherubim uh, guarding the temple appear to only have two wings. So you've got these different uh, physical characteristics, I'll call it. While not called cherubim, the four living creatures around God's throne described in Revelation they certainly closely resemble Ezekiel's cherubim, and I would say they absolutely do. So the reason I want to kind of lay that out in that foundation is this, uh, Revelation 4, 6 through 8, again, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were the four living creatures. So I show you an example here on video of a throne, of a chair, a throne, you know, uh, and that if you look at it, it says that around the four living creatures— so that to me implies that they're covering the front, the back, the left side, and the, and the right side. But what's interesting, if you go to Ezekiel 28, which, which we read, and remember when I emphasized Sherev, uh, who covers. So if you look on the right, I'm going to say this. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed Sherev who covers. So who co if you're covering the Lord, then you're overhead. You're you're a, a canopy type. So it the implication that I certainly get take from this is one of Lucifer's assignments was he was at the throne room of the Lord and he was the one who covered the throne room. It says and and it, it goes obviously until iniquity was found in you. So I believe that that was his um, his uh, uh, one one of his 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 assignments. I'll call it. So, although Revelation states that there was four, I would say that it's quite possible that the original design was five, and that, you know, the Lord, for whatever reason, and it's, you know, that we know of, it's not given in Scripture, that that overhead position was not replaced after Lucifer w was thrown out of heaven. So, Isaiah fourteen twelve through 15 outlines the fall of Lucifer. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. So again, he, he sees himself, he's going up and above uh, that, that, that pride. And it says, I will sit on the mount of the congregation. Remember, he, he walked the, in, in the mountains of the Lord. On the farther sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. 
Isaiah 45 on the right-hand side, this is important. Uh, they all are important. Uh, but this is, so here, for this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God. So God is establishing right there, I am the one who created the heavens. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. And this is important for where we're going. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. And the reason I'm highlighting this is we're going to look at Genesis 1 through 3 now. We're going to break that down. And as I said, there's a lot to glean from in these first three opening uh, verses that I would say that we don't even have a timeline on it. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1.2, now the earth was unformed and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So the reason I want to pause here is because so oftentimes most churches, I believe, and ones that I've heard, they kind of go right from that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. They skip verse two, and then they go into verse three and let there be light and there was light. As though we're just going to kind of push that verse two through as though, you know, that that really didn't happen. And I, and And it's there for a reason. So if God created the beginning and the heavens and the earth, it was beautiful. It was magnificent. He would not create something that's unformed and void. And, and, and the word end is important, too, because that implies that there was something before. And I say that that is correct. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and darkness and void it became uh, unformed and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of the God hovered over the face of the waters. So here you have the creation, then you have something that impacted, uh, you know, what we're seeing here right now. So, you know, it's important to stay with this. Then you go to verse 3, and let there be light, and then there was light. So I'm going to break this down a little bit for you more. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And again, if you're following me on video, I'm showing you some images that could hopefully give you a comparison for it. And then what I would say is Lucifer's judgment, that what we looked at in those verses of Scripture where iniquity was found in him, that caused the fall, that caused the earth to go into utter darkness. And, and what we know, and, and I'll break this down further as we, as we move this along, into a massive flood before the flood of Noah. Uh, and then you have... Uh, Adam and the six days of creation, that begins in verse three. So there's an awful lot of information that happened in verse one and in verse two, and then you get to verse three. So let me keep going. Job 38, four through 11. I'm going to jump to the middle. While the morning stars sang together and the angel, actually, no, I should have said it from the beginning. I apologize. Let me start at verse four. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? This is the Lord speaking to Job. Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? 
while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So that's showing you that all of the angels were present. The morning stars are, are, are another term for angels and all of the angels. So that's the cherubim, the seraphim and, and uh, other classifications. They were all there. It was a joyous time. It was a time of, uh, of splendor and, and marvel and looking at the Lord making the heavens and the universes and the galaxies. And, and it's all wonderful and it's beautiful. And it says, Who shut the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? So I, I just kind of wanted to lay out that in the very beginning, in Genesis 1-1, the angels were there. Lucifer was there. Uh, all, all were present. Now I want you to look at Jeremiah four twenty three through 28. It says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man. All the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and his cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. So, you know, again, this is, you know, the, the, the prophet Jeremiah saying, you know, the Lord is revealing uh, the earth was indeed without form and void. So you, this is kind of alluding to Genesis 1 through 2, Genesis 1 2. So I want to break down what that really means. So the Hebrew word without form and void uh, are, are rhyming words, and it's pronounced tohu vabohu. Uh, and, and I give you this, this spelling here. The English, uh, Hebrew-English lexicon defines it as formlessness, confusion, unreality, emptiness, chaos, and waste. Bohu means emptiness. Va simply means end. So uh, uh, Billy Brim wrote a book, uh, The Glory of God, and she gave this account, which I, 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 I think it sums it up perfectly, uh, when she was talking about this, and there was a Hebrew woman, uh, it was a German woman, I think, so maybe she understood Yiddish. And this is what, you know, after uh, uh, Billy Brim had, had said this and brought out Tohu Fabohu, this is what the woman in, in Munich had said. Uh, her, when Billy did this, she said, her eyes lit up with understanding when I said the Hebrew words. And then she responded this, we know what Tohu Fabohu means. She spoke out loudly. We use that saying. We got it from the Jews. It's like this. You clean your house perfectly. It's spotless. Then you walk down the hall, open the door to your teenager's room, and you scream, this place is tohu vabohu. Clean it at once. So, you know, for all you parents out there who have raised teenagers, you understand, and I think anybody really would. So you have this perfectly cleaned house. You have this perfectly clean planet. And, and, and galaxies, but then sin enters, or a teenager enters, enters, and chaos and things just thrown and, and thrown all over the place. So that's the example that she gave, which I, I think is is just kind of sums it up perfectly. So God did not form a formless uh, earth; it was not confused and empty and chaotic mess. That's not who the Lord is. That makes no sense. So we cannot skip over verse two. Uh, that that creation does not meet the biblical criteria for God. God's work is perfect. Deuteronomy 32.4, it's glorious. Psalm uh, 111.3, the Bible pr provides its own commentary on tohu vabohu. 
this verse specifically states that God did not make the earth tohu. You know, we, we checked that off in Isaiah. God himself formed the earth. He made it. He established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is none else. God created earth in a state of glorious perfection. Planet Earth fell into a chaotic ruin described in the Bible's second verse. The Hebrew word translated was in Genesis 1-2 is very enlightening. The lexicon gives the basic meaning of this verb as fall out, come to pass, become, be. Further definitions include happen, occur, and come to pass. Uh, I mean, so there you have it. I'm going to jump down to the bottom. Uh, Bollinger's comments in the Companion Bible state, not created tohu as in Isaiah 45, but became Tohu and Second Peter 3, 5 through 6, as well as Genesis 1 through 2, Genesis 1, 2. Something catastrophic happened between the first and second verses of Genesis. And that's where I say that's the first fall. So you have before Satan uh, or before the fall of Satan, which is Genesis 1, 1, then after the fall of Satan, which is Genesis 1, 2. So Hopefully, you know, if if you're listening to me on podcast, if you can jump over to the video and see this, I, I, I think this will help. I, I did a, a kind of laid out a chart that hopefully shines a little bit of a light on this. And I'm going to be pointing to some open-ended questions that we have and that we'll be looking at and the world hasn't really addressed. So remember, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. Well, if we look at John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning. So we all know that God and the Word are one, synonymous with Jesus. And how do we know that? John, John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the beginning, there was Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He created the heaven and the earth. So I jumped down to uh, Job 38, 4 through 7. Remember, when the morning stars sang together and all the suns shouted for joy, that included Lucifer. He was with the angels that shouted for joy. Then you have Genesis 1, 2. Now the earth was unformed and void. This is the fall of Satan. This is the iniquity that was found in him. So here you have Satan and uh, or the angels at the time, you know, uh, Lucifer, and, and they're inhabiting the earth, they're inhabiting the galaxies, they're walking and they're living in this created splendor of, of universes and galaxies that the, that the Lord created, but now, boom, it's done. So what does the Lord do? He creates man, and he starts that by the creation process in Genesis 1 through 3, let there be light, and then there was light, and then you know that that goes on And we're talking about the creation of Adam and Eve and then the human race thereafter. So we know what happened. I'm not going to break down uh, the fall of sin and and how Adam and Eve sinned and and entered sin into the world, which gave license back to the earth uh, or back to Satan on the earth where he was given the title deed because he was the one who who caused sin. He was the one who, who initiated or drove the, the, the fall of man. But obviously this was known from the foundations of the earth. And there you have the Genesis 3.15 prophecy that's given out immediately after the fall 
or, or of sin. Uh, and Genesis 3.14 goes, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast on the field. On your belly you should go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And this is the death sentence. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So this is going to be very important when we get into uh, the, the section two. Satan has a seed. Just as God has a seed, and, and that seed being planted by Holy Spirit in Mary, uh, uh, leading up to the birth of Jesus, Satan has a seed. He shall bruise, and goes on to say that uh, he shall bruise your head, meaning Jesus, and you shall bruise his heel, and that alludes to the crucifixion. So if you're following me on video, I give you this kind of timeline, and we know uh Based upon a lot of research, and I'm going to say the the most um, widely accepted uh, date goes to 4004 BC. I'm not going to break down all of why that is, uh, but and, and I've done this before in the past. But if you look at that as the creation of man is 4004 BC, then you go to Jesus. You've you've got another 4,000 years before you get there, which was the fulfillment at the cross of Genesis 3.15. So, if you look at this timeline, well, what happened before 4004? And really, this goes to what is the age of the earth? Because that's an important question that so many people bring up. And and, and uh, I think you have to take into account, and, and we, can, we can know, uh, and we do know, um, because of the generational layout from Adam and Eve, of what we're looking at up to 6,000 years today. But we don't really know what that age of the earth was beforehand. And this is where a lot of people will kind of justify where science will like to say that we're millions and billions of years old. Uh, I, I do not, and, and I we do not know emphatically what that number is. But before Adam and Eve and when the earth was created and you had the fall, we don't know what that number is. Could that darkness, could that have included the Ice Age? Could dinosaurs have been part of that before the advent of man? That's certainly possible, and it's something I'm going to get into uh, when, when we get into the, the Nephilim. I'm going to bring up some things that I, I know will make you think. Um, so there, you know, those are question marks. We don't know what those answers are definitively, or at least I've never heard anybody who can give you a 100% uh, definition and, and back it up. However, there's certainly enough information that we can draw a general consensus. And I think it's safe to say that you can view the earth as being uh, anywhere from six to a 10,000 year range. I'll get into this a little bit deeper. I, I will be exploring this year, the age of the earth, but those are the unknowns. And that's why I wanted to really get into uh, those three verses of Genesis, I think it's so important because it lays out exactly Satan's um, drive here because the title deed now has been given to man to begin with. Satan gets it back, but then he loses it at the cross. And then it's a matter of time gets fulfilled before the return and the second coming of Jesus. So here you have this created splendid being that we described that the Lord made and he had all of this at his fingertips. And now man in his limitations and 
um, you know, we are spirit, soul, and body. But in, in terms of we don't, you know, we, we don't really comprehend or understand the vastness of creation the way that angels would. Um, and nor do we have that those abilities and power. We're limited uh, in, in terms of what we can do by our mortal bodies, but we are limit, unlimited in terms of the potential within us because of Jesus, the blood, and the Holy Spirit. So hopefully that gives you kind of an idea that uh, this title deed has been given to us, to man, that was once Lucifer's, and he's not happy about it. And, and I, I almost think it's kind of a thumb in the eye, for lack of a better expression, that this lowly being that is is so prestigious that Jesus adopted us, that he adopted us, he, he left heaven for us, and he took us as his own, where the angels were, and, and still, you know, the angels are, but let me say the fallen angels, they've lost that, that right that we now have, uh, and, and that there's something very unique and special that the Lord has given us and those abilities, and we don't want to take that lightly. Um, so that's part of the reason I wanted to bring all this up. So let me kind of conclude with this. I'm giving you a timeline of Jesus' victory over sin and death. Uh, so I'm laying this out from, it says 4040 BC. That's a typo. I apologize. That last zero shouldn't have been there. Uh, leading up to the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Again, the Genesis 3.15, Genesis 6.4. This is very important, and we're going to be getting into this in our next section. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old and men of renown. So here you have these fallen angels after the fall of Satan, third of them uh, uh, with, with, with Satan, and they, they left their assigned posts, I'll call it, and they had sexual relations and married daughters, which created these uh, Nephilim beasts. And for those who are not familiar with it, uh, you know, I've done a number of presentations on this, and you can find plenty of information out there. And there's a ton of, inf of credible visual information that you can see with your own eyes all around the world uh, from these, these great... Um, uh, uh, monuments and, and uh, erections and villages and towns and, 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 and bones and skeletons and uh, archaeological digs that, that bear this out, that w you know, we had the giants uh, not only before the fall uh, um, or before the fall of, of, of Adam, but also, uh, I'm sorry, before the, the flood of, of Noah and then after the flood. Uh, so I've covered a lot of this. So if you follow the timeline, it goes in from uh, Noah to the flood, to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, to David, and right up until around 974 BC when we have uh, those accounts of, of, the, of the Nephilim and the giants. You don't see a lot of that afterwards, uh, but we, we do know that we have uh, you know, visual confirmation of that occurring afterwards. Um, and then you have... First uh, Peter three eighteen through twenty, for Christ indeed died for sins once and for all, and uh, the just and the righteous, for the unjust and the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits 
now in prison. So those are the fallen angels. So after, um, after the crucifixion and the part before the resurrection, the three days, Jesus went to hell, went to Tartarus. And, uh, you know, one word says ministered. It's, it's not really, you know, there's no salvation for these fallen angels. But this is where they are. Um, and he goes on to say, who were once disobedient when the great patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah's family, were safely brought safely through the water. So you have this period right up until the flood. So because of the Nephilim, because of their uh, sin and because of their polluting the earth, and, and we're going to get into just how it was so bad that, that God decided to wipe out the earth, that's called the antediluvian period. So before the flood, it's a span of 1,700 years. But during this period, sin and evil became so pervasive, the Lord decided to destroy all men and every living creature, except for the eight that he found favor with in Noah and his family. So the plan of Satan through this is to genetically modify the DNA of man so that the line of the Messiah would be polluted. Now remember, he's gotten the death sentence. He's received the death sentence. He knows the Messiah is coming. He understands this. So he tries to stall it, prevent it by um, uh, modifying the DNA of mankind on earth. And he does that through the birth of these Nephilim. So the this is the plan of Satan. Uh, this plan, if successful, it would have prevented the Messiah from coming, thus preventing the punishment of the Satan and the fallen angels. How does he do this? By mixing his seed with man, thereby changing his DNA. So obviously, you know, you have the X and Y chromosomes, but if you have an angelic being having sexual relations, then that DNA and that chromosome uh, is all for naught. It's basically, it's a mutant. Um, So consider that God made man in his image. Satan is trying to make man in his image because he always tries to present a false copy of what the Lord does. So this just gives you a, a basic timeline. But in the next section, we're going to really break down what the impact of the Nephilim were and, and what is and it is today and, and so much more. Um, but this is the seriousness of the battle that we face that Satan knows. And, and if you're living and you're listening to this and you believe you're living in the last days, so does Satan. He knows and understands this. He, and, and, you know, I, there, there are so many things that point to it. And I'll say the greatest super sign is the birth of Israel. And once he saw Israel became a nation, and even beforehand, I'll say that was a large driving force of the uh, persecution of the Holocaust, was he was obviously privy to see uh, the Hebrew nation being built up. So that was what I believe was the motivation to Hitler and others, uh, where evil uh, just ran rampant in, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, but this is the serious nature of it. So this is not to be poo-pooed. This is... This is who we're up against. This is who the Lord is is dealing with. And he's chosen us to be vessels of his peace, to be vessels of his love, to be vessels of carrying the message. Because for those who don't know him, you know, a life without him is, is an eternity in hell. And, you know, that may sound harsh, but it's the truth. So, uh, you know, that that's really what 
uh, my driving force is. I, I want to bring this information out into the forefront. So let me thank you for listening to part one and for dealing with my uh, failing voice. Hopefully it was enough to get the uh, audio levels up there. Uh, I'd like to thank you as always. Questions, comments, please email me, russicoutlook at gmail.com. And if you do not know the Lord, if you have any questions, please, please do. Uh, no matter what it is, there's no question or comment that's uh, off off track or, uh, you know, off uh, I forget what the word I want is, but you get what I, you get what I'm saying. So please do that. Email me, and and if you're ready to accept the Lord, it's as simple as saying, "Lord, I'm a sinner. Jesus, come into my heart. I need you. Please be the Lord and Savior of my life." And uh, I I know that sounds simple, but it really is that easy. He said the word says, "I knock at the door of your heart. If you open the door of your heart and you let him in, he will come in and sup with you." So. Please take advantage of that. Um, again, I'd just like to thank you. You've been listening to the Rustic Outlook. And remember, as always, just my opinion.